Hello and welcome to the Shepherd Walwyn podcast series. My name is Jonathan Brown. Shepherd Walwyn is a campaigning book publisher based in London, England. Our purpose is to uncover and promote new ideas to society's oldest problems. And whilst our specialty is ethical economics, something Anthony Werner, our driving force for over 40 years, has pioneered, we have branched out over the years to other related areas such as the environment and the lives and works of society's change agents. These podcasts promote ideas we're convinced can actually help us build a better society for all of us. So have a listen and be sure to share with your friends if you like them, but also tell us what you think. These are debates we all need to be part of. So without further ado, let's get into the interview. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. My name's Jonathan Brown. Today I'm speaking with Dom Frisby, perhaps the world's first economic commentator and comedian. Dom has been a friend of SW and PSE for a long time, hosting talks with Phil, but also he was crucial to the superb documentary, The Four Horsemen, something we know our readers and subscribers have enjoyed over the years. A short time ago, we interviewed Dom to look at all his work. And whilst he isn't an SW author, we think his work is worth the time to look at, as he also has an interesting perspective on precious metals, crypto, the markets in general, and also political systems. In this first podcast, we look at how Don became the world's first economist, investor, comedian, how he became a libertarian, this section is subtitled, Why Cuban Fathers Want Their Daughters to Be Prostitutes, Um, and we also look at how well-intended government actions can undermine and even eliminate personal responsibility of the citizens they are trying to help. We then finish off with the importance of 1907 to the First World War, and also why people of every political persuasion hate the BBC. Dom, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for inviting me. Um, it seems quite a while since we um, were first talking about doing it. I just wonder, just for the audience, I know most of our, our readers and listeners will will know about you, but if you just give us a quick background as to how you became the world's first um, economist, investor, comedian. Well, I, I don't know if I am the world's first, because um, I was, I described that, I call myself that on the um, I think somewhere in, in one of bi- a biography somewhere it says the world's only financial writer and comedian. But um, I was in I was doing Edinburgh and some German guy came up to me and said, oh, I'm a financial writer and comedian, too. So there is another guy out there in Germany uh, rivaling me. But the. Um, the. I, I went to university after school, like most people do, and um, I was pretty sure I wanted to be a writer of some kind. My dad was a writer and I th- thought I wanted to be a writer. Um, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to write. Um, and But I had an idea I wanted to travel. And um, then I looked at all the writers, you know, who I thought were the best writers, William Shakespeare and Charles Dickens and people like that. And they'd all started out as actors. And um, so I thought, you know, I should go and start out as an actor in order to be a writer. And maybe you need to start out as an actor to know how actors think and so on in order to be able to write for them. And so I was doing that thing in my early 20s where I wasn't really sure what I was doing. But anyway, I went to Weber Douglas Drama School. And um, and I guess I lost my way a bit, bit because when I was at drama school, I think I lost sight of the writing. And it turned out I was the best in the year at radio. I don't know why, but I just always, I wasn't, I always thought I was an okay actor, but I don't think the teachers ever thought that much of me. But um, I was just good at radio. And when I left drama school, as I was leaving, in those days, it was cassettes. And I sent a cassette around all the voiceover agents in London. And one of them signed me up. And within a week, I had my first voiceover job within a week of leaving drama school. 
and um and it was a one-year contract uh and it was paying 280 pounds uh once a week to voice a program on channel four and you were really well treated and 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 it was reasonably good money and so i would do acting jobs and things but but i just never was successful as quickly as i was um doing voiceovers and so i just found myself as a voiceover artist and you know there just aren't many young blokes or there weren't at that time doing it and there was a lot of demand for young voices um i remember one of my first big advertising campaigns was the nintendo 64 and i guess they wanted a young bloke to be the voice of that for obvious reasons because young blokes are the market and um so this is in the 90s and then i went to um while i was doing voiceovers i wrote this act stand-up act called the um the upper class rapper and i had this idea that i wanted to release it as a christmas novelty single um it was a comic song it wasn't a stand-up actor it was a comic song and i i was at university with a bloke who'd gone on and become a music agent so i phoned him up and i said uh you know i've got this novelty song that i think would be quite a good christmas novelty single in those days there would always be christmas novelty singles that 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 you know got into the top 10 and stuff and he said i'll go and do it in my brother's club and his brother was a bloke called malcolm hardy who's a sort of legend in comedy who had a club in southeast london very rough famously rough club and i went to the open spot night to do an open spot and um everyone was just getting booed off and in those days if you if you did well you got given a paid booking straight away and my set went really well and so the following week i got a a half spot, a paid booking. So my second ever gig was a paid booking. And then that went really well. And they were like, look, we can't give you a paid 20 straight away because you don't have the experience, but we'll give you another paid half spot. And I'll phone up a few other clubs in London and get you booked there. And just suddenly I found myself as a stand-up comic and um, voiceovers and stand-up comedy, you can do both. You know, you can go and do gigs in the evening and voiceovers in a day. So. I found myself doing that. And now we're in the early noughties. Voice service is also quite a well-played, paid job, uh, or it was back then. It's not, not so much now. And um, I just found myself with some money. And then I'd got, I'd got divorced and I had a bit of money and I wanted to invest it. And one thing that had always baffled me was why house prices are so expensive. I could never understand why a house was so expensive when it was built 150 years ago in most cases. And, um, you know, people didn't earn as much as house prices cost and I couldn't understand it. And then um, I was uh, working out how to invest the money and I was just reading stuff on the internet late at night. And I stumbled across all this stuff about gold and investing in gold and money and so on. And uh, I thought, oh, this is really interesting. I like this. This is a story that I understand, intuitively understand. And I think what I was slowly discovering was basically Austrian economics, which is the sort of most natural, you know, intuitive form of economics. It just makes sense on a basic level. And um, there were all these really interesting people talking, Jim Rogers and James Turk and all these guys. And I was like, I I'd like to interview these people and find out more. And also, I'd like to get financial advice from them, but I don't want to have to pay for it. So I uh, started a podcast, a bit like yourself. Many people have done it since. I started a podcast as an excuse to meet these people. And what I discovered was 
how happy, particularly back then, people were to do interviews and give their time. I guess they're promoting their own brand. And um, just the podcast was really popular. It was an investment podcast. It was one of the first ever podcasts, I suppose, um, called Commodity Watch Radio. What a name. And um, it was just really popular. And, and one of the people I interviewed was a lady called Merrin Somerset Webb, who writes for Money Week and the FT. And she said, oh, we need people like you to come and write for us at Money Week. And I was like, well, I don't know anything about money. And she said, no, it's fine. It's fine. Just come and write for us. And so I had a, suddenly I had a column for Money Week. And here I am 15 late, years late. I'm still writing the same weekly column on their website. I suppose you call it a weekly blog. And what I discovered is one of the disciplines of comedy is you have to, um, you have to speak if the audience doesn't understand what you're saying, they don't laugh. So that imposes the discipline of clarity onto the comedian. And so I think I brought that into writing about finance. It was always very clear. And a lot of people who write about finance uh, always obfuscate a lot. Um, Alan Greenspan called it purposeful obfuscation. Obfuscation. And so um, my you know, column was reasonably popular. I was writing about gold and gold miners and commodities, and they were in a bull market at the time. And so the wind was with me and everything went pretty well. And so that's how I ended up with this weird double life as a financial writer and comedian. And it, it sort of works. <laughs> it shouldn't do, but it kind of works. And, and, and that's, that's where I, how I am, where I am today. And, and did the libertarian views come from your, your reading of the Austrian economist then? I didn't really, I, I don't think I actually read that much. I've read bits of Mises and bits of, I read a lot of Murray Rothbard and, Milton Friedman and so on. Milton Friedman's, I suppose you'd call him an Austrian, sort of. And um, the, yeah, I mean, the problem with gold is, because gold is money, or was money, depending on what your definition of money is, um, the, it's a very political metal. And it's probably the most political investment you can make, or it was before Bitcoin came along. And if, if you're, if you're, investing in it you you start to read about the politics of small government and individual responsibility and low taxes and not debasing the currency and all that kind of stuff and so i i wouldn't say gold turned me into a libertarian but gold helped me discover that i am a libertarian mm. and the, i think the, the theme that runs through all your work is that the whole the importance of sound money um and also um not laissez-faire government but the smallest government possible yeah, I mean, I'm a bit inconsistent because if I go to a couple of gold conferences or a Bitcoin conference or something, I'll come out of it just going, we need, I want to be an anarcho-capitalist, zero government, but probably in practical terms, um, you know, 10 or 15% of GDP is more practical. Hmm. Certainly hmm. where we have nation states. So you, your first book was Life After the States. Is that right? Yeah. And you, you start yeah, off. So go on. Yeah, I wrote that. I, I wrote a film or I co-wrote a film called Four Horsemen, which was very popular uh, film all about the global economy. But the guy I wrote it with, we had a big falling out because nobody who worked on the film got paid and he didn't credit me properly. Or at least I felt he didn't credit me properly. And so there was a big falling out. But the film was extraordinarily popular. Mm. I, I think it's had nine or 10 million views on YouTube. And it just showed me, the experience showed me that you don't need to be 
a famous economist to write about economics and big stuff. And so that that led me into life after this day. I knew I could write about big stuff without having a degree at Oxford in economics or anything, in PPE or something. It's a very popular, um, it's a very popular um, film for, yeah, it's just under 10 million on the main site. How much? Um, 10 million? Just under 10 million, nine and a half million. Yeah. Um, is it normally double? Is that you get the the official views and then you get the people steal it and then put it on their own site and stuff? Yeah, and it was broadcast on TV on a few TV channels, and um, I guess it's on Facebook as well and uh, other, you know, what's that one called? You Bit Shoot or whatever. You know, I, it'll be on other platforms as well. Yeah, and yeah, it's it's a great yeah, it's a great film. Um, so that then led you to life after the state. And somewhat, somewhat amusingly, I don't think, you start the book with why every Cuban father wanted his daughter to be a hooker. I just wonder if you could, uh, if you could take us through some of your adventures in in South America and and what that really is about. Yeah, one of the um, guys who helped me edit it was was like encouraged me to write provocative chapter titles and tell stories rather than just philosophize and. Um, but in the early 90s, it would have been probably 94, something like that. I said at the beginning of the interview, I wanted to travel a lot. And um, but I'd also felt by the time I would finished my studies that it was time to work and take life seriously. And so I sort of did a deal with myself, which was that I would work. But every year on Boxing Day, I would go away and I would come back at the end of January. So I would effectively have five or six weeks travel. Nothing much happened in January. So in effect, I only missed a week or two of, of work. And so, and I was in love with Latin America. So I went to Colombia one year, Cuba another year, Bolivia another year, um, Guatemala and Honduras another year, you know, all these wonderful places. And I was really into Latin uh, dancing, salsa music and so I was really excited to go to Cuba which was the home of it and I had deluded ideas from university about what socialism and communism and being left-wing meant and I thought when I went to Cuba I'd be going to like you know somewhere with beaches like you get in Thailand and delicious exotic food and beautiful women and uh, 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 beautiful people and listening to amazing music and drinking rum and coke and exotic cocktails and all the rest of it and I got there and it was the most depressing country it was like Havana was just falling apart and it needed a face just the whole thing needed a facelift and I've just never seen poverty like it I'd been to India and I'd been to North Africa and stuff but it was a different sort of poverty um because and and, and you know I've been all across northern thailand which at the time was very poor too but this cuban thing was like literally nobody had any money and 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 you couldn't even if you had money cuban money i'm talking about you couldn't buy anything there just wasn't stuff available to buy and the only time you could buy anything was in these american run that sorry these government run shops which would only accept us dollars and i was like how can you have the cuban government which is you know, hates America, it, uh, running these government supermarkets where you only accept US dollars. 
And the only stuff you could buy with Cuban pesos was like ice cream and pizza. And, and it wasn't nice, ice, you know, Western ice cream. And, you know, you'd have this famously brilliant education system, but nobody had pens or paper. And you have this famously brilliant healthcare, but nobody had medicines or syringes or anything like that. So what's the point? Um, and you'd have like these highly qualified people, you know, a brilliant engineer or a brilliant doctor. And I'm gonna I'm gonna get the numbers wrong now because it's so long since I was there. But my recollection is they'd earn like twenty dollars a month, but they'd be paid that in Cuban pesos. They wouldn't be paid that in US dollars. And you couldn't buy anything with Cuban pesos. And the official exchange rate was one peso to one dollar. But the art, there was a sort of unofficial exchange rate, which was 20 pesos to one dollar. And just everyone wanted US dollars because it was the only way you could buy anything like um, clothes or, you know, a pair of jeans. You could not buy a pair of jeans with Cuban pesos. Or, or meat, you know, anything that we just totally take for granted, you can only get with US dollars. So you had this situation where, for some reason, there were loads of Italians going there. And you'd have these really beautiful, handsome, well-dressed Italian men who'd like cop off with a Cuban girl or the Cuban girl would cop off with the Italian. I'm not quite sure which way around it was. And so you had these sort of mixed race uh, couples walking around. And, and there were basically loads of people who were treating Cuba as it was sex tourism. And the only way that Cubans could get dollars was via tourists. And the easiest way to get the dollars off the tourists was to shag them or to give them a lift, um, you know, taxis. So basically everyone wanted to be either a hooker or a taxi driver or a waiter, you know, any way you could get. It was, didn't matter if you had a PhD in, in nuclear science or whatever. You had no access to, to Westerners. So you've got this situation where the demographic that was the uh, uneducated girl, usually a black girl in her late teens or early 20s, was earning more money than anyone else. Um, and, you know, a, 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 a girl could earn in a night, you know, I don't know, $100 or something or $200, whatever, sleeping with a tourist. And she would become the girlfriend of that tourist while he was there. And often they would try and marry him and get out of the country. But that was the way you got your dollars. And so that's why I came up with that title, why every Cuban father wanted his daughter to be a hooker. And the, you know, I was staying with this family when I was out there and the, the father, I forget what he did. He was some kind of engineer. And he would he just explain that whole dynamic. I mean, I saw it with my own eyes, but he explained it. You know, I want my daughter to be a hooker because that's how I get her dollars. Now, I think when Castro overthrew um, the previous regime, you know, they, he's the revolutionaries and he was mates with the Che Guevara who taught him about communism and they overthrew the horrible Americans and the whole horrible capitalist regime and all the rest of it. And Cuba's always been America's playground. All the villains, uh, you know, took their alcohol money from the twenties and built casinos and so on in Cuba. So it, it was always a bit sex touristy anyway. And, 
and sleazy and America's playground and so on. People go to Cuba to do stuff they couldn't do in America. But, you know, you saw in Havana the sheer might or the wealth that had once been in Cuba. You could just see by the buildings and the scale of the buildings how much wealth had once been there. But it had all fallen apart since the since the revolution. And I'm sure Castro went in with the highest ideals. And then the only way he could make his plans work after America cut him off, after the revolution, after the sanctions and so on, was to ally himself with Russia. And of course, Russia was delighted to have an ally right on America's doorstep at the height of the Cold War. That would have you know, really wound up America. And it did. Um, so Russia would give Cuba essentials. And you had this bizarre situation where you had these huge uh, American vehicles from the early 1950s before the regime, these huge cars like you see in Back to the Future. And then all these larders, these Russian larders. Um, and it was just this weird kind of contrast of the two vehicles and, and nothing in between. And so America, Cuba, Russia would bail out Cuba with essential supplies. But because they were all administered and distributed by government, you know, what they weren't allocated in the same way that they would be in a, in a free market. But as I say, I'm sure Castro went in with the highest ideals. And if you said to Castro, if you overthrow this regime, you are going to create, create an imbalanced society where proper education is not rewarded and everyone is going to incentivize to send their daughters into prostitution. Is that what you really want? I'm sure he would have said no. <laughs> but the the unintended consequence of all the high goals and the lofty goals of the revolution was to create this society where every Cuban father wanted his daughter to be a hooker. And there's a wonderful metaphor in there for the unintended consequences of government action that intends good things to happen um, and gets something very, very different. Mm. And I know in, in um, I think if it was if it's daylight robbery or life out of the state, when you talk about when um, there was the introduction of, of national insurance and which eliminated the friendly societies. Yeah, the the friendly societies, when people go, you know, we, people forget that the welfare state is a rel relatively new invention. Um, you know, it was I think it was only called the welfare state after World War Two, but it really it's, it's kind of started with the National Insurance Act with which was, you know, between 1907 and 1911. There was a series of acts, David Lloyd George and Churchill. And before then. Welfare and education to a certain extent, education was a bit earlier than other forms of welfare, late 19th century, but education and welfare and healthcare and all these things were not provided by government. They were provided by the church and in the, in the 19th century, what were called the friendly societies, the cooperative societies. And in the context of the time, they worked really well. And they happened organically. You know, human beings have a basic need to provide each other with welfare. They don't want to see other human beings in times of need um, going hard off. You know, it's a basic human instinct to want to help each other. And obviously that varies in different degrees with different human beings. And to meet this need, 
with the increased wealth of the 19th century, the, the friendly societies emerged. And, and so, for example, you would have a, it might be a community built around a, a, some workers or, a, or an area or whatever. And they would employ the local doctor, for example. And the doctor would be directly accountable to the parents, uh, to the uh, patients uh, and, and to, the, to his employers, which was the friendly society. And they had insurance, you know, mutual insurance. And the beauty of it is, is that they were much smaller than state sponsored welfare. And there was much more like, you know, different forms of welfare required different, different treatments. One guy might need an arm around his shoulder and another guy might need to kick up the backside. Whereas one size all state welfare, where you just get given a state amount, same certain amount of money and that's it, doesn't, doesn't have that flexibility. Whereas you could get that kind of thing. And they were so successful, the friendly societies, but there was still like a bottom three, four, five percent that slipped through the net. And with all the increased wealth and the Victorians were, of course, great philanthropists, great charity. They really grew this thing of wanting to help help our fellow man. When I look through at the British people, I think the Victorian, you know, is the Victorians who outlawed slavery. They were just I think when I look at British history, I just think the Victorians were the greatest people that we've ever produced and obviously they're the same people that we are now or in a lot of us are now but they but in the context of the times and what they did and what they achieved you just look at the buildings they built and the things they did and the wage growth all through the 19th century and how you know at the beginning of the 19th century um most people were illiterate and by about three quarters of the way through everyone could read and write bar a few exceptions literacy levels were not far off what they are today by about 1870 when education became compulsory they were just a phenomenal people and they built stuff they thought like people at the top of an empire and they thought you know we're going to build stuff that's not just you know a profit over five years we're going to build stuff that's going to last forever because we are a great people and we want to leave our legacy you know we can't build stuff today that's like what the victorians built I'm living in a Victorian house. It was built for a railway worker in 18, whatever, 90 something. And, and, and it's 100 years, 130 years later, it's still standing. And it's, 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 it's you know, a railway worker couldn't even afford one room in this house. Anyway, so the friendly societies were so successful that David Lloyd George and, and, and uh, Winston Churchill wanted to replicate them at the national level. So they bought in the national insurance and ordinary workers couldn't afford or didn't want to pay their insurance twice why would you pay the national insurance and pay your local insurance when they're both giving you the same service you don't pay for it twice so because national insurance was compulsory they had to pay that and nationally the unintended consequence of national insurance which was to replicate the friendly societies was that it put them all out of business um, and it was a tiny thing. It was just a tiny, tiny thing between 1907 and 1911. And then it just got bigger. It was the, it was the first hole in the dam. And then it just got bigger and bigger. And the First World War came along. And then there was all those deaths. And then they had to make everything good after the First War, World War. And look, all the family, look after the families had lost loved ones, look after the wounded soldiers and so on. And just... Welfare grew and grew and grew. And as it grew, the state grew and taxes grew 
and we've never looked back. It's never stopped growing ever since. You certainly looking at your uh, your work and, and other stuff as well. There was a there's a period around that time, like you say, like you know, I guess was it um, ninety nine people's was it the people's budget or, um, and then you yeah they called got people's budget and then you got the um, you know the creation of the Fed in America in in nineteen thirteen, and then we get into the First World War and then the UK Britain comes off the gold standard and as you say in your work. They had to print the money. They had to come off gold so they could print more money um, and then pretend that they hadn't. So they tried to go back onto the gold standard as well. But there is that just extraordinary explosion that you write about of the of, of income tax, of, of other charges and, and everything else. And also just, the, I guess, the state doing more um, and interfering more and more in people's lives. Like if I was to pinpoint the point at which everything went, went wrong, sometimes I think it's the, the people's budget, the National Insurance Act. Um, and sometimes I just think it was World War One. You know, World War One. there were so many people who, you know, you mentioned the foundation of the Fred, Fed in America. The other thing they got in 1913 was income tax for the first time. Although that's slightly more complicated. But here, you know, there were just loads of people who, started paying income tax for the first time in world war one because of the higher rates and the lower thresholds and the pattern with a government in crisis is very common and it repeats itself and this is something i talk about in daylight robbery when there's some kind of crisis government is able to do things when there's a crisis that it would not be normally be able to do in peacetime so it's especially raise taxes and so for example you know 2008 if if they come along and said we've got this idea for quantitative easing before there was a financial crisis they would never have been allowed to do it similarly a lot of the covid stuff all the higher taxes in world war one and world war two without the crisis of that war those new measures wouldn't have been able to exist it wouldn't have been allowed um but you know the people wouldn't have accepted it but they get introduced under the with the crisis and then after the crisis has passed Things never go back to what they were before the crisis began. Quantitative easing is now normal. You know, I think just today the government's going to buy over a billion uh, pounds worth. It's that stuff gets introduced in the crisis and after the crisis has passed, it never goes back to what it was. Even the Institute of Fiscal Studies admits this happens and they call it the the, the ratchet effect. And so with each crisis, government grows. You got you look at COVID today, just governments everywhere in a way that it just never was. Yeah, and and not and, and again and also as well is, is is demonstrating that if you don't agree with them, then then you get yourself a whole lot of trouble. Right? There's no, you know, I, I you can't deny that anyone who's dissented about the received wisdom on COVID or the received wisdom on masks or the received wisdom on vaccines you know, has been ostracised and in many cases cancelled and, and, and removed. Therefore, it, you know, even with the, the apparently free market that is tech, we've learned that it's just not that free and there's some kind of unholy alliance between government and tech behind the scenes. But any dissenting voices have been suppressed or cancelled. Mm. And on mainstream telly, there's a narrative and there's no, you don't see the other side of the narrative. And those who are on the other side of the narrative are, are nutters or cranks or anti-vaxxers or whatever and um yeah they've, they've been cancelled basically or suppressed and then and some of the i mean 
watching your show. Um, was it back in October when we did, you did the show in? Um, was it October, November? At the backyard. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it was early, early November. Yeah. Right. And good night, the, that wasn't it? Oh, it was phenomenal. It was really was just um, just great stuff, and also just a, a fantastic audience. Yeah. Um, the audience were great. And um, and just some of the stuff you there. And I know if, if people haven't seen your comedy stuff, they've just seen your economics. They really need to listen to some of your songs and stuff. And um, and your comments are very funny. One of the things that surprised me as well, I just on that on a slight detour, was I remember the BBC getting one of the biggest when you were telling about maybe the it was it was um, maybe what was the it? maybe song the maybe song. And you said maybe the BBC didn't have the right, you know, and, and that had the, that, I remember that having the biggest cheer about the BBC's errors and, and the way that that's gone. It's really funny because in the culture war, the, the one thing that unites left and right and the centre doesn't agree, but is a loathing of the BBC. The model is out of date. It's not fit for the times. We don't need state-supplied TV anymore. The, the reasons for the BBC to exist have gone. We don't need state media. You know, our entertainment needs are met perfectly well by the internet and Netflix and Disney and all those other channels. You know, we just don't need it. And, and our oral needs, we don't need BBC radio because we've got podcasts. We don't need the weather and the news because there's infinite supplies of both. And it's just a model for another time if indeed it was ever appropriate but the left think the bbc is biased to the right and the right think the bbc is biased to the left and the frustration with it is is universal and so like i do that song that the maybe song and there's just certain subjects i can only do it in certain rooms you know depending on what the room thinks but the bbc is there is a national communal frustration with it. Mm. And again, most people who work in the BBC are well-intentioned and the, the, the goals of the BBC were well-intentioned. Martin Durkin is very good on this, the documentary maker, but he talks about the reason the BBC was formed in the first place came with the invention of radio. And the government were really concerned about this new medium radio and the possibilities of radio and they wanted to control it. They didn't want, dissenting voices to all have their thing on radio so the reason the bbc existed was to control this new medium of radio and um anyway that's that's by the by but you know i've just done a pilot for the bbc and i pray to god that that they commission it because it, it is literally even with everything that's going on if you're a comedian it is still the best platform there is it's just a fantastic platform and so you'll get a lot of actors and comedians and people like that defending it but that's because they're the ones who are lucky enough to be on the platform <laughs> yeah but in terms of i just think my attitude is um make it voluntary and and then you just solve everything if you want to subscribe um uh, you can and if you don't want to you don't have to and 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 there we go i mean i, I buy it because i watch match of the day most weeks i can't stand the gary lineker and the panel but I like watching my weekly football highlights, but then again, I can just as just as easily watch them on on the internet. So yeah, that's my stance. But yeah, uh, dissatisfaction with the BBC is commonly felt 
on both sides of the culture war. Mm. Thanks for listening to the first part in this interview with Dom Frisby. For more information, you can check out the links on his content below, his YouTube channels and his new investor subscription service. And also check out the other episodes when they're released. Until next time, keep reading. Thank you for listening to the Shepherd Walwyn podcast. To explore these ideas further, be sure to visit our website, www.shepherdwalwyn.com and join our mailing list for news and special offers. Check out our authors and buy the books to learn more. And you can also find us on social media. Links are also on the website. And if you like the podcast, please head over to iTunes or Spotify to give us a review. It's surprisingly helpful in getting the ideas out there. So until next time, keep reading. <laughs>